and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you to each and every one of you that come back each week to listen, learn, and expand. I know if you are here, it's because you're interested in learning from other people's stories and gathering more strategies for your life toolbox. And that is exactly what I want for you too. I want you to, through conversation, to help you navigate challenging situations, find meaningful ways to connect with your loved ones, and for you and I to continue on this self-discovery journey. The world around us is ever-changing and so are we as humans. So if you're here today with us, I want you to take a moment and acknowledge that you're showing up for yourself, that you have carved out this time just for you. And I think that's amazing. Now today, I'm pretty sure you'll want some pen and paper, but if you're out walking, that's okay. Definitely listen, but download this episode so that you have it for later. Sometimes one of our greatest challenges are the interactions that we have with other people, settling disputes, overcoming interpersonal conflict or just reaching a compromise can often be an anxiety-inducing event. That's why today's episode will be highlighting advice on how to navigate these experiences with the help of Alan Parker, a world-class negotiator. Alan has been held at gunpoint in a hotel room three times. He has worn bullet vests over and over, yet he is one of the most patient, humble, and present men that I have ever met in my life. I'm so excited for all of you to hear what he has to offer today. Alan is the Director of Peak Performance Development, which will pop in the show notes for all of you to jump on and have a look. His clients have included Microsoft in 11 countries, AMP, Macquarie Bank in multiple countries, the New South Wales Bar Association, five different ombudsman's offices in Australia and New Zealand, and the Royal Commission of Physicians and the United Nations. He is the co-author of the best-selling book, Switch on Your Brain, author of Negotiation Toolkit, and one of the co-authors of Beyond Yes, Negotiating and Networking. More recently, Alan moderated two meetings at the United Nations World Investment Forum in Africa. In 2019, Alan received the Order of Australia on the Queen's Birthdays Honours List for the contribution to business and particularly dispute resolution. He's been awarded Australia's highest professional speaking awards and wrote Australia's first degree in negotiation for the Australian Catholic University. Not only that, Alan has run 16 marathons and 11 ultra marathons. He has so many credentials. I cannot fit them all in here, but I I just wanted to let you know, as Alan is so humble, he barely mentions any of these. He has been working as a negotiator in this space for about 40 years, and his style is unique, patient, inquisitive, and wholeheartedly present. We talk about so much in this interview, but I wanted to give you some highlights so you know what you can look forward to. We look at the systems behind communication, negotiations, and how to dance in conversation. 
why love is so important, how to embed information in your procedural memory, which is the most reliable memory system we have, and how to adjust your emotional, physical, and mental state before you engage someone or a group. And we discuss how Alan personally manages conflict situations. Alan's background includes studies in the area of brain science, applied neuroscience, microbehavioral science, adult education, counseling, social communication, and dispute resolution. Okay, that is enough from me. I am dying to get into this conversation. Thank you, Alan, for giving up your time today to come on the show. Ali, it's a, a joy. I'm thrilled to be here. Alan, I love to start the podcast with a question about if you were to choose an animal that best describes you, what animal would that be and why? Having had three minutes to think about that, I'd be a cross breed and I'd be half eagle and half owl. Yeah. Do you want to explain that a little bit? The owl is still observant, quiet, and always considered, and it's it's very composed, and it has the image of being wise. And the eagle flies very high and is always looking down on the hole. And the eagle has the widest in-focused eye capacity. So as you and I have a focal vision in the centre and a peripheral vision, the eagle actually has wide focal which is amazing. You think about the potential if we as human beings could have wide focus. Yes. Yeah. Across multiple things, not just visually, like if we could have wide focus in the way that we walk in the world. I'm going to tell you, I actually thought you said we're going to say crocodile, like because you started with cross and I was like, a crocodile, really? I've only met you very briefly, but I wouldn't have chosen a crocodile. Except I do have a thick skin. I'm not easily upset. (laughs) And, Alan, as everyone would have heard in the introduction, you have lived Oh my God, so many lives, it feels like. You know, the more I researched, the more I found things that I was, I I got like sucked into. I couldn't keep looking at new things because I was like, oh my God, what's that? That's so interesting. Such a colourful career. When you think through that career, what's something that you're really proud of? Oh gosh, actually it's one of the monumentally big things I've done and achieved But the thing I'm most proud of was something that occurred just at the end of it that had nothing to do with it. I was invited by the United Nations to run two meetings at the World Investment Forum in Ghana in Africa for the United Nations. And I had 462 people in the room in the negotiation from 192 countries. And I interviewed all 462 people before the meeting. So I did a lot of preparation And we actually were very successful. We got unanimous agreements in both cases. And I went to the dinner that night after it, and because it was an important thing and a lot of people knew that it was happening, it was my first United meeting. I've done some work for the United Nations, but I hadn't actually been to an official United Nations meeting. Uh, So it was my first. And... It was amazing. I was just, everybody approached me. Everybody said, you're the guy who got the unanimous agreement today and everybody wanted to know about it. And I'm such a maximum participator, but I have very little attachment to the outcome. 
So I just know that if I go in and do a really beautiful, graceful, considered, inclusive job, that good stuff will be the result. So I'm not very outcome-oriented. And I went to the dinner and I was quite humbled by how much attention I received because I'm, I'm a learned extrovert. I'm a deep introvert. I was the, I'm the fourth of nine children and I'm the only introvert in a family of 11. <gasps> so I had to learn to be an extrovert. So I'm a very learned extrovert. I woke up the next morning and I had a, a plane going early and I got I cleared the airport and I'm in my seat on the plane and I got a text message and it was from my niece, my elder brother's daughter. And Jacqueline said, oh, dear Al, I am so embarrassed and I have to apologise to you. And I thought, what on earth for? And I read on and she said, I've just Googled you. And she said, I had no idea that you'd done what you've done. And she said, please accept my apologies. And I sent her back a note saying, I call her Jacko. I said, Jacko, please don't be concerned at all. I don't talk much about my work, particularly with you, because you and I talk about real things about who we are, not what we do. And I sat in the seat afterwards and I thought how incredibly blessed I am and grateful I am that I have that, not only with Jacqueline, but with, with a lot. My own partner doesn't know half of what I do. He learns some of the stuff I do from having social interactions with people I work with. And he'll often go to me, I didn't know about that. <laughs> So I, I very much, because my work is intense, I very much demarcate this is my work and this is my personal world. Mm. And I'm sitting in my little home office and I don't take a phone call or send a text from outside. I, that's my home. This is my office. I don't take the computer out into the house. I don't take a document out into the house and read. If we just pause for a moment, I just even that, like I think we could all take a leaf out of the book just no. even as you're saying that, you know, I'm listening thinking, God, imagine if I just did that just a little fraction more than what I do right now. My quality of life and my quality of relationships yeah. would improve. And I'm really mindful of that space, but I get, mm. I'm not great at it. Well, part of my weird background is I'm a neuroscientist and that's just increasing our spatial visual intelligence. So that when my body knows that when I walk into this room, it flicks my personal world off and it flicks my working world on and I'm straight into it. And it means I also don't take the things and the concerns and the worries or the stresses from here and I don't take it outside the door. Mm. And that's so relevant even when you think about sleep in a bedroom as well. Like that's transferable across if you only use the bedroom for sleep instead of bringing your work in and your phone in and all that stimulus in, it can help really help with the quality of sleep. We have a rule that if we have unfinished business or we're annoyed or something about something, we don't go to the bedroom until we've cleared it up. Yeah. So we don't take tension into the bedroom. I'll drive as an eccentric weirdo. No. <laughs> I already love it. 
<laughs> it was interesting. As I was listening to you talk, I heard the word negotiation and I thought, yeah. and negotiator, and I thought what that might be a really great place to kind of have a bit of a conversation about what that word means. You know, that's where you spend most of your time, your day-to-day work, but for many, yeah. they would not even be aware of how much it's integrated into their world. Oh, I always say that the the negotiation that requires most attention to do really, really well is the negotiations I have with myself between my ears. Yeah. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, just getting out of bed in the morning, it's the negotiation between the slug who just wants to lie there and turn off the, the alarm and go back to sleep and the excited part who says, oh, I've got a meeting I've got to get to. And those two have got to have a successful negotiation to get me to navigate from the bed to the bathroom. Yeah. How many hundreds of those do we have in a day? Mm-hmm. And every one of those flows on to the ones we have with others. Yeah. So what does it look like for you in the world of being a negotiator? Like what does, what does work look like for you? What do you do in your job? Oh, gosh, what a big question. Because... As a professional negotiator, I work with large groups. That's my my expertise. And in essence, I create enough rapport and safety with all the parties before I ever consider bringing them together. And I have this absolute deep belief that agreement is always available and we all want to work together productively to produce the best result we can get. But There's this curly little thing called an ego that gets in the way. Mm. And so a lot of my work is connecting with people's ego so that we can get it to cooperate with us. Yeah. And I do that largely by listening carefully and asking a lot of questions. We were only talking about question asking before we started this, weren't we? We were. Around the art of asking a question. And I'm mm. sure we're going to get into some of that as we go throughout this podcast, some yeah. of the the questions. I know when I've listened to you and anyone that hasn't gone on and had a listen to your other podcasts, you definitely should because that's something that I really noticed was what questions you asked and how much that mm. opened up the other person in the interview. It was really quite incredible listening. Yeah. Eight months ago I – wrote the fifth edition of the Negotiator's Toolkit, which I wrote first edition 25 years ago. And in the last edition, I threw out the chapter on questions and I wrote the chapter as if I was teaching linguistics only. Mm. And I came up with the seven questions that we frequently ask that we need to ask a lot less of. E.g., don't you think it would be a good idea if we went in the personal negotiation area before the professional. Now, that sounds like a a reasonable question, but the fact I've started it with don't you will create confusion Mm. because the literal question needs a yes or a no. And when I put don't you, 50% of people will think the answer is yes and 50% will think it's no. And therefore, that's the best question you can create if you want to create confusion and, and discussion. Yeah. But if you don't want confusion and debate usually, don't use that question. And being aware of those little nuances within language that can set the track that you go on without even being aware of it almost. Yeah. 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 Now, if I simply said, which direction would you like to go, personal or professional, 
I'm 50% giving you a, a choice. Whereas mm. the first one, I wasn't giving you a choice at all. Mm. But if I said, where would you like to go and not give you the A or B, that's actually giving you 75%. Mm. Or if I said to you, how would you like this interview to work? That just opens it up for you to do absolutely anything you want. So there's just four types of questions that nobody will ever listen and hear the difference but completely influences your handling of it. And the experience of the receiver. Yeah. Yep. Mm. And, you know, we, we started with, you know, one of the things that you're kind of proud of with work. You would have also had a lot of challenges at work. This isn't, it's called Challenges That Change Us. Yeah. We're going to lead into some expert stuff later on. But before yeah. we get to that, I'm thinking about, like, as I listen to you, you're so humble and patient and kind and welcoming. And I'm thinking in my head, how do you manage these big conflict situations and these, <laughs> I'm sure you've come into some challenging situations. And how does that look for you? Just to give you an extreme sense of fact that, you know, it, it's not always nice environments I'm in. I've worn bulletproof vests six times and I've been held up in my hotel room at gunpoint three times. In all of them, the first time I was wore a bulletproof vest, it was under instruction from a premier to do the work and they insisted I wear a bulletproof vest, which I didn't particularly want to do, and they wanted me to have a full police escort, which I refused. And I said, no, you can't, the police can't be on my premises. I go in there with the belief that these are good human beings who want to do well. And if we bring the police in, that's as clear communication that we don't believe that they can do well. So I I negotiated with the police and they drove around the facility. One car drove around and one car stood still out the front and they weren't allowed in. And, um, That particular negotiation went really, really well. And we concluded the negotiation about two hours ahead of time. And I talked them into doing a five-year plan for the future. It starts with my belief that they're good human beings who want to do well. And as long as I deeply believe that, that'll come out in every pore in my skin. And people don't get that very often. Mm-hmm. You know, most people run into doubt or aggression or fear or hostility or jealousy or bias. And I just go, let me see if I can give these people an experience they don't get very often. And you said it earlier, it's developing rapport and safety as well yeah. because if you start yeah. off on that foot, it will look extremely different than if you come in, yeah. you know, guns blazing, yeah. people behind you, on the defence. Yeah. Easy for me to say I haven't been in that situation, but, you know, just listening. Yeah. There's probably some listeners going, oh, it's a bit too touchy-feely, but just to let them know that there's some very highly structured, very considered process going on, e.g., If we take the United Nations meeting, I interviewed all 462 people who were going to be in the room. Now, I was the only person on the planet who knew what their needs were because I spoke for an hour with every person and I asked them to tell me what they think I need to know and most of that's problems and I let them talk for a quarter of the time and then I say to them, you must have had some substantial amount of unmet needs. Now, nobody's ever asked you what your unmet needs were, yeah? But I go after the unmet needs. 
And, of course, they tell me what they are. Now, the clever bit, when I get to talking about the unmet needs, you've now forgotten the problem. So some of those needs are unmet, and I suspect then they can't be met. And they go, yeah, it's too late. And I go, so we've got to forgive and forget that. And just like you are now, they nod their head and go, yeah. Mm. And I go, so the others are current needs. They go, yeah, they're still they're still needs. So I go, oh, let's make them current needs. Tell me what else are your current needs. And then they, they're really good at telling me what their needs are. Now, the first two needs that they give me, I know that they don't think they're going to get them. I know the other parties don't think they're going to get them. And they all tell each other anyway, even though they all know that it's not going to get up. And so I just ignore the first couple and I just keep asking them, if you get that, what will that give you? Mm. And that gets to the trooper deeper, deeper needs. Now, all of that is completely irrelevant because the next question is where the interview starts. The next question is, Ali, now this is completely scripted. I'm going to do it as though it's, I'm thinking it out loud. I've never said it before. Ali, I just, I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm trying to just imagine and picture the other 461 people at the same time. Now, what I'm doing is asking the brain to be collectively inclusive, which the ego never does. But I'm for a second going, if there are those 462 people including you, and if they did have a single need that is in common to all of them, what do you reckon it might be? Now, that's totally scripted. Every pause is totally calculated. And as a neuroscientist, I know I've just switched off all of the brain that you were using before, and I've now asked the speculative, hypothetical, imaginative, innovative brain to think and answer a question. And, of course, you come up with a real need. So if I said to you, of all the people you know, your family, all your friends, if they were to come together and they had a single need, what would it be? What would your answer be, Ellie? Now, notice that that just required a very large and big breath. Yeah. And that's because that part of the brain hasn't been used. And the brain says, oh, that's, I need the frontal lobe for that. And I need all the empathy I've got in my midbrain and my frontal lobe. And I haven't got enough oxygen right now. If I take a bigger breath, I'm likely to get those parts of the brain working. So what would you say? How would you, what would you say is everybody's name? My first thought is connection. Yes. I had to pull out of my analytical brain, though, because I had been listening to you thinking, you know what, it's lovely to hear the structure behind it because yeah. I think sometimes that's what we don't notice is there is structure behind a lot of this and there's a lot of yes. research that goes into, you know, that's where. And so when you asked me the question, I was like, oh, I need to shift gears. But I think connection, love, safety, mm-hmm. if you really – bore down into it. Yep. And of all the people I've ever interviewed, connection is one of the five most common needs Mm. over 40 years and thousands and thousands of interviews. Yeah. And it's interesting. I call them interviews, not negotiations. And yet they're serious negotiations. But I prefer to think of them as an interview, which reminds me that I don't have my own opinion. I'm just exploring. And then the way I do it, it turns into a conversation. And the conversation is the skill of connection. Mm. And I invariably 
use the word love in every interview I ever do somewhere. You just got it in this one. <laughs> and tell me about that, you know, why the word love, where does it come from? Oh, because I think this is, again, a deep personal belief. I think our driving motivation is to love or be loved. Mm. Yeah. And I guess this leads us into what we had talked about discussing today, which is really around what is it about our human interactions that actually give us a better chance to be healthier and successful in our own lives? Yeah. We are herding animals. Connection is critical. We can't survive on our own. We are interdependent. Mm. It's how, and how do we be healthier? Really, if I go down to very basic biology, I ask you if I could go and fill my water glass before we started. If you and I don't have water, we can't be healthy. So I'll have consumed that water by the time I finish the interview and fill it up before the next one. And water, oxygen, and glucose are the three substances that we need in our bodies to stay alive critical for us to get that right and I loved it when I asked you that collective question to watch you go and you took about 10 times more oxygen in than you have at any other point and I went her brain's alive and now and the neurons are ready and sparked and energetic and ready to go so like that (laughs) that's a big breath you can see it beautiful Beautiful. I can hear it we need to breathe more often yeah. And that's why love's so important. Every time you love something, you go, <sighs> And what it does in our brains, right? Now, love occurs because a neurotransmitter called oxytocin transmits. If you wave a gardenia past my nose, I will go, Because <sighs> I have roses and gardenias. I have such a strong, if, any, if there's anybody in the world I love, they get a get out gardenias or roses from me very early. And, you know, our olfactory, our smelling senses, is one of our deepest ways of stimulating oxytocin. We fall in love with people because of the smell that they elicit through the pheromones that we, that we give out. When we were meeting this morning and um, we were about three minutes in and I went, oh, good, the pheromones are working. We've got norepinephrine's going. We're both excited and there's passion and enthusiasm. And I'm going, that's the right brain chemicals. And we didn't quite have the technology right. And, <laughs> and so, we, you, you know, you were saying, do we go off and do it another day? Or, and I went, no, let me find it because the chemicals were right. Yeah. And, and being a, neuro, a neuroscientist and a microbehavioral scientist, I can watch somebody's behaviour and tell you what chemicals are going on. And we had the right chemicals. So I went, no, we're going to do it today. (laughs) So we did it this afternoon. (laughs) We found another spot. And when oxytocin and norepinephrine is passion, enthusiasm and excitement, when norepinephrine and oxytocin is going, your love for your work and my love for your work and noradrenaline, which is excitement, enthusiasm and passion, when those things come together, my God, you, you can't fail. 
And what I'm hearing is, and this is probably the first time, particularly in this series of the podcast that we've heard it, it's when the science meets the softer skills, you know, like so often we hear people talking about communication, love, connection in one space and we hear the scientists talking about, you know, this is what happens in the brain, but rarely, you know, do we we see where that bridge happens and that's what I'm hearing from you today as as I listen. My life has been devoted to applied science. Mm. I read something about neuroscience and, you know, I remember the first time I struck the word norepinephrine and it's the the excitement, enthusiasm and passion neurotransmitter. It's this message centre in the brain. I thought to myself, well, I'm going to give myself the task of every time I see somebody excited, enthusiastic and passionate over the next week, I'm going to say norepinephrine's happening just to remind me that it's not science in a vacuum but it's science in, in action. Mm. And, you know, I did a keynote address for a, a large conference yesterday and it was 95% males. It was a senior executive team with no women. Boy, did I give them some hassle about that one. But because I did it really playfully and energetically and lots of norepinephrine and I said to them, you just got to get ready. I'm so excited and enthusiastic and I love what I do. You're just going to have to come along with me. And this is this big room full of alpha males. And at first they're all sitting there going. And then, you know, rather than go, oh, isn't that awkward? They've all got their arms folded. And they said, and they've all got your bloody arms folded. So will you just unfold them? (laughs) And half the room just unfolded them. They all started laughing. And I went, that's neuroscience in action. Yeah. Communication in action because I was observing the behaviour. They were doing it. They knew they were doing it. I knew they were doing it. And we could have pretended that it wasn't happening, which we often do. I can't say, I'm all right, you lot of buffets. Get your arms unfolded. I didn't, you know, didn't do that. And I didn't make it wrong. I just observed it and went, well, you're all sitting there with your arms folded. Can we bring the air conditioning up a bit? Yeah. And, again, just using humour, and they all broke and away I went. And then I said to them, look, you guys have all got chatter going on inside your head about this weird guy in front of you, and this is just about being healthy human beings instead of hiding from stuff. And I said to them, why don't you have a quick chat and tell them the most judgmental thing you thought about me in the first five minutes, yeah? And away they go, they were all laughing, and and I brought them back, and I went, I'm not going to ask any of you, but how many of you have changed your mind? And 90% of them put up their hands. Now, me going, how many of you have changed your mind, I'm just embedding that into their procedural memory because if I get them to do something when something's memorable, It'll go into their procedural memory, which is their most reliable memory system. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes. So I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. So as I'm listening, I'm thinking we're talking a lot about, you know, that joy and that pleasure and that, you know, I was actually thinking how infectious you are as you're talking about that. 
there's the other side of the coin of what our brain does when we feel like we're in that flight fight response and then how that influences our communication as well. You know, like when you were saying that the guys had their arms folded, but had they even felt slightly more even threatened, you know, potentially there might have been some threat there. But if it was even a level up again, I imagine going into negotiations that there's often a lot of tension walking into the room. You know, there's a whole story that comes into the room. What's happening for the human in that space and how do you navigate that? Oh, beautiful question. What's happening inside their head is their neurotic mind chatter has taken over their logical self. Mm-hmm. Explain that to us a little bit more. It means I'm walking along the corridor toward the meeting and over the last hour or two I've been thinking about all the things that could go wrong, all the things you're going to say that I'm not going to like, all the tough conversation pieces that we've got to have, and all I'm doing is imagining that it's going to be awful or it's going to be difficult or I'm going to have to work hard, or I'm going to have to drive it home, or I'm going to have to push it, instead of going, how would I like it to be? And here's the big one, and I teach this in almost everything I do, what's the emotional state you want to bring into the negotiation? And what's the mental state you want to bring into the negotiation? And what's the physical state you want to bring into the negotiation? So yesterday I had 90 people, I think there were four women in the room, and they were big alpha males. So I had to walk in with big energy. And that wasn't where I was in the morning beforehand. I was in quite a soft, gentle place. And I went, that's not going to work. So in the taxi as I drove over, I just kept breathing and changing into the persona that I wanted Alan to bring into the room. Mm. And I knew I wanted to be playful. I knew I wanted to be provocative. I knew I wanted to be mischievous. Because alpha males don't know what to do with those. And they were just so unbelievably cooperative and did everything I wanted them to do. And it was just because I masterminded my own emotional, mental and physical state to be in the perfect state I want to be in to do the work that I want to do. And people worry about going into something. I go, why would you worry? Why wouldn't you rehearse instead? Yeah. Mm. And they're just everything we've said so far is just about how to be a healthier and better human being. But there's such subtle, you know, I'm listening and I'm picking up on so many things and I, I hope that the listeners are, but I'm also aware that I'm coming into this with a psych background and, a, you know, and I'm wondering like there's yeah. – Are people understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about state and we're talking about, you know, how do you change your state before you go into a conversation and when is it worthwhile and, like, what do you do? So maybe it might just be worthwhile unpacking that just a little bit when you said that. You know, someone's sitting there listening going, okay, I I can follow him when he says that, but what does that mean for me? Yeah. Well, if we look at the average person, and they talk about emotional, mental and physical state all the time. I just don't label it that way. But the most common conversation that we hear of late is about stress. Mm-hmm. Every, everyone's stressed. Everyone's rushed. Everyone's busy. Yep. And I go, boy, if we just stop that conversation, doesn't matter what we replace it with. You know, it's why I, I introduce myself all the time as being extremely eccentric. And that bears no connection whatsoever to stressed, anxious, or busy. And the minute. Somebody says to me, oh, I'm really stressed. And I go, so you're a little over alert because your stress system is your alert system. And when we talk about stress, it's just that I'm over alert. 
And if we could each time we notice ourselves getting over alert, just pause and let our bodies slump and take a breath. And instead of affirming how I am, get into the habit of talking about what I'm becoming. Because we affirm dysfunction so frequently. And now the term mental health has become a common phrase. You know, I remember my mother's phrase for it a long time ago was, I'm a bit nervy. And I think, wouldn't it be useful if we could all drop back to Joyce's, I'm a bit nervy. I just want to pull up there for a moment because I think what we're talking about is being talked about in industry and at Mm. multiple levels, and I think you're really fine-tuning it, is the language we use, the story we tell ourselves, and I guess it's just opening up a little bit around if we change the language and story, is it enough? In our heads, if we change the language and story, is it enough to change our state or are there other things at play here? As a neuroscientist, a forensic linguist, the answer to your question is definitely. Which is so powerful. We don't necessarily need to change the story that was. We just need to write today's chapter and become the author of our story, not the narrator of our story. And this is where, you know, counselling versus coaching both play a role, right? Like counselling often goes back looking at how do we unpack what's happened, what's been, how do we understand our emotional signature and coaching looks at how do we drive forwards? Like this is where you are, where do you want to be and how do we bridge that gap? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And there are places where both of them have a place and my comment to people If you're not sight trained or you're not trained in some way, don't go backwards except to go, that happened, what I learned from it was, what I need to forgive is, and what I'm going to do next is. Now, if the human being could program that into their nervous system, we wouldn't need a therapist or a coach. Mm -hmm. Just simply what just happened. And not what did I feel, what happened. And I think the last two are what people struggle with. Well, learning to accept, I think, is absolutely what does that mean, you know, and sometimes it is just this how is how it is and I choose to accept what I can't control yep. or this is what it is. It just is what it is. Yep. What you've learned, I find in my experience, and please correct me if this is not yours, but people can reflect on what they've learned when they have the space to, but the part that I find is kind of like the hurdle is the what do I need to forgive because there's that, you know, that's where often people get a little bit stuck. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Forgiveness is the doorway to freedom. Yes, but people have challenge in that space. So what? let's talk around forgiveness. Let's talk about the challenge first, if I may. Yes. The I truly believe that if you come to me with something that happened yesterday and you're really distressed about it, and I say to you, Ali, look back there and tell me what happened. What did you see and what did you hear and what did you say or do? And if you tell me what it was and I say, wow, that wasn't what you wanted. Now, that wasn't what you wanted is an acknowledgement. Now, you will not leave the past and come to the present until you've, what you've said has been acknowledged. Yeah. Now, if it was something unpleasant, I'm not going to manage the unpleasant. I'm just going to say, Ali, I'm sorry for you that happened. So I'm going to give the apology. And I just hope that you can forgive and through the forgiveness some 
forget it somewhere. But I'm just wondering, now watch this, I'm just wondering what is it that you need right now that I can assist you with? And now I'm bringing you to the present. And if I've acknowledged you and asked you about it and we've had some meaningful conversation, and I'm not saying, oh, Ali, that was terrible, you must have been traumatised. So I'm not affirming the negative at all. I'm just letting you know I heard what you said and I'm acknowledging it. And then when you've indicated to me you've there's some evidence that you feel heard, I then go, how can I assist now? How can I assist now? And in terms of asking questions, how can I assist now? Now, that's a very short question. It's what's called a broad WH question. It's a what or a how. A what stimulates your thought conceptually. How stimulates your action-oriented thinking behavioural brain. So how might might is speculative, so there's not a right or a wrong. I assist you now, and I'm bringing you to the prison. Now, the moment you're in the prison, your short-term memory has 30 seconds. If I can keep you in the prison, your short-term memory in 30 seconds has forgotten that, and we just created amnesia. How can I assist now? Now, once I ask that question and I pause, each time I've asked it, you nod your head yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it's because you've felt heard. Mm. And again, what I'm hearing is that systematic approach that breaks down. Like I don't know if people understand how much research and years of experience is going into what you're saying right now. Like, you know, it is really powerful if we can take on board some of what you're saying, you know, having a meaningful conversation without dropping people into that place of overwhelm or past, you know, how do we then move forwards into a space of like, how can we help you? Yes, we're here. What what are we going to do with that information? And I'm not going to use your words at the moment because they're so special how you use them, but I'm definitely going to go and write those down. So we didn't quite touch on forgiveness. And I think around difficult conversations, we touched on what people bring into the room, but maybe also like, I don't know if we've really touched on about how they change their state. You know, when you're walking in, you know, it's a difficult conversation. Like when you're saying that I just resonate, so I could move on from that. But I'm thinking for our listeners that maybe those two things, what are your thoughts? With forgiveness, there are so many people who find forgiveness a hard thing to do. Part of why I just, I flicked it in quickly and moved on is so that the word could be heard, but not attended to. And you beautifully picked it up and we heard it and got it, said it again, it's a bit like love. Mm. You know, I drop love in every now and again. They're just the words people are uncomfortable with, and I just reintroduce them slowly. And when we spoke about forgiveness, like we mentioned that and we kind of like kept talking and we kept moving forwards, but <laughs> I just want to pop back to forgiveness because yeah. I know people struggle with forgiveness and yeah. just having a bit of a conversation yeah. around what it is that people struggle with and what they can do with that once they realise yeah. and they've got that awareness that maybe yeah. that's what's yeah. where they're hitting that hurdle. It's such a biggie. And we have it. A- Society, and partly because of our political system and our legal system, we have a very blame-oriented society, So, and being right and wrong. And both of those are oppositions to forgiveness. And so I, I think people find it something that they're short on, their ability to forgive, 
But from a neuroscience point of view, it's only because they've got the neurons there. They've just got to fire them and use them and practice them a bit. And I think the starting point for a lot of people is to go, I'm going to forgive myself because I screwed that up. Yeah, that's a bigger question. (laughs) How do we forgive ourselves? (laughs) You know, for some people, forgiving themselves is going to be much easier and for others it's going to be much harder. Yeah. Yeah. So, But I always say, just go, I'll forgive myself. The thing I love to do is go, can I find the place where I can forgive us because we didn't get it right together? Yeah. Yeah. In that relationship, in that moment. In that relationship, in that moment, we didn't do as well as we wanted to do. Mm. And that's okay. (laughs) I can say it on my own or I can say it with the other person. But but it's okay for us to go. We didn't we didn't go how we wanted. Yeah, and and having that lightness around that too is what I'm hearing in your voice. It's like it's okay yeah. that it didn't happen. Okay. <laughs> we don't need to hang on to that so tightly and give it so much energy. And yeah, there's a fair amount of evidence in human history that says we didn't get it right first time all the time. Yeah, you know, I I also I love to live the world going. This is just an experiment. <gasps> Yeah. I was just going to ask you about that. I've heard you talk about this and it's one of the gold nuggets that I think is really, really valuable. Yeah, it's, I think you're aware, but I was born with an unusual eye condition that meant I didn't read until I was 30, 3-0. Had I ta- did I mention that to you? No, but I have heard this from doing my research, but, yes, I would love to and, explore this, yeah. And I, I'm a nerdy learner. I've always been a nerdy learner. I've always been curious. I, I wanted to learn and and be be a good learner. And because I couldn't read, I had to experiment and find new ways to learn stuff because I couldn't get it off the page. You know, one of the things I used to do as a small kid in school was in the breaks, I'd quickly dart around and learn which kids talked about the television program, which kids talked about the football, which kids talked about their tennis, and which kids talked about the last lesson. And I always, once I found out, I just went to the kids who talked about the last lesson because I had to rehear what they were saying. And that just meant it got in because I got it the second time. Now, as a brain scientist, I now know that was me what's called consolidating. And it was sending a message to a piece of my, an important piece of my brain called the hippocampus. And it's the thing that decides what goes into short term memory and what goes into long term memory. And the more repetition I do and the more inquiry I do and the more curious I am, the more importance the hippocampus puts on it and sticks it into long-term memory. Now, what I didn't realise was, you know, apart from the fact I was a kid growing big ears, but I was this insatiable listener and always asking questions because that was for, you know, my first 12 years in school, that was my primary way of getting information in for sure. I'm an experimenter by nature. And if it's so much easier, an experiment says, I'm just trialling and testing something to find out what happens. I'm not here to make it right. Mm. And it gives you the ability to go, this isn't about I've got to get it right straight away. This is about me just being brave enough to step in and have a go and see what happens. And, and I think when you do it that proactive way, you don't need as much forgiveness because you haven't got the expectations it's going to be perfect. 
And imagine if we all just use that language around our big next scary thing that we're trying in this yeah. world. I'm just going to experiment with this. Experiment. Doesn't that change the landscape straight away? <laughs> it does. Yep. Yep. And the lovely thing I find about that is even if I said this is the goal I have but I'm going to experiment and if it doesn't go the way I want it, I could end up with another goal or another outcome that could in fact be better than the one I thought. So many people think if they're experimenting and, and testing something out, it'll go wrong. And I go, no, if you're experimenting, there isn't a wrong or right. There's just how it turns up. And then it's what you learn from it. Mm. And if we just constantly go, not what happened and why it was wrong and how I felt, but what happened and what did I do before that that led to it happening that way? Or what didn't I do during it that I could have done? And we're really taking a leaf, and we can hear it as you're talking, out of the science world and applying it into our well-being. Yeah. And, you know, I just feel deeply, deeply blessed that I'm a microbehavioural neuroscientist and a forensic linguist. I only ever deal with mm. tiny things. <laughs> Says the guy that we've had how many? 465 people in the room. <laughs> just tiny things. <laughs> but the, the mastery is in the little things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I've heard consistently throughout this interview is the the tiny little things that you have said. Mm. It's like we need to pull it apart bit by bit by bit. Like hopefully people will re-listen and re-listen because yeah. there's it's kind of jam-packed into a small amount. But yes. there's so much that you've already said today yes. that can be so valuable and useful as we walk into yeah, the world. One of the reasons for that is I knew it, but I've only been saying it for the last few years. This is my 40th year of doing this work and really my science research is about this three seconds. That's what I research. So I'm saying this, you're there with a slightly glazed look and a still head but it's nodding yes and it pauses and it's waiting. So it gives me permission to say the next piece and now you've just nodded your head same way, but that time you pursed your lips, so I'm going to stop. Yeah. And it's about can I be so beautifully in the moment that I see what's happening in front of me and can I honour and respond to that now in a particular way? And, and when I do that, there's no chatter inside my head because all my attention's on yeah. you so that I can watch what my experiment's doing, what impact the experiment's having. In this moment. And it's that intention that you're bringing into that conversation. Mm-hmm. Your intention is to be fully there and to observe yeah. and to listen and to be curious, you know, and that's – I am thinking, though, and I do need to ask this because I know I'm going to regret it if I get off and don't ask. <laughs> I kind of touched on it, but it's even stronger now, is how do you, with this beautiful, gentle, non-intimidating nature, walk into – a high-conflict situation and hold space in that space because I'm listening to you and experiencing you as so available and here and the word is gentle but in the most present and an intelligent way, if that makes sense. Mm. Like mm. when I say gentle, it's about you just, you're just here with me. And I'm yeah. thinking, how do you walk into these environments and <laughs> what do you do there and how do you manage that? That question leads me to say at some point I'd love to do a, a video 
podcast with you so that I can show you non-verbally what I do. Yes. I'm going to do it with you and then I'm going to verbalize it. So this is what I've been doing with you and this is non-verbal approachable. So everything about me right now is approachable. Mm. I'm just about to become credible. And notice I don't feel as gentle. And now I feel more credible. Now the listeners will hear that my voice has got clearer in diction and sharper because I'm sitting more erect and upright. Mm. And all those soft, gentle, nonverbal cues have gone and I'm much stiller. And whilst my head is turned slightly away from you, my eye contact is now very piercingly to your eyes. And I'm going to say to you, Ali, you'll do as I say because I'm running the process. Now that's what's called credible, hard, soft communication. So I've gone out of being soft body gentle to firm, erect, upright, still, and the angle of the head is just off centre, but my eye is directly at you. So everything non-verbally at the moment is hard. My diction is clearer. My punctuation is sharper. And when I give you the instruction, it's extremely soft. And aggressive, hostile people have no clue what to do when you put hard and soft together. Mm. Does that make sense? Then you can feel it. And as much as you don't like it, yeah, you're aware I'm running the show right now. Yeah. It's do I understand how to be approachable, then I'm credible, and then I'm authoritative. And then I drop out of that really quickly and go, thanks, Ali, I knew we could work together. And I thank you with approachability, and now I've gone credible, authoritative, humble, mm. and approachable. You've got to be humble and say thank you. And the reason I ask that question is because if we can understand that mm. as a leader, as a mum, as a dad, yes. as a partner, as a teacher, yes. as a farmer, like it's changing that. I always talk about it's putting a jersey on. It's it's wearing a different jumper for the yes. environment but still coming in with honest intention and good intention. Your intention didn't change. When we listened to you as you talked. Not at all. The intention didn't change, but everything else did. Yeah. 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 And, Ali, I am in every interaction I'm in, I'm in it for everyone. Yeah. I'm not an advocate for a party. I am so clear that good negotiation is when we we actually find out how we link, integrate and connect and work together. That's when we get our best results. And this, you know, we're going to headbutt. It's just a it's a competitive model, not a cooperative one. Mm. Yeah. And and you don't win. No one wins in no. that scenario. And people don't want to not win either, right? Like yeah. if we really ask the person. And Alan, in the negotiator toolkit, which I recommend everyone going out and grabbing, you talk about three different types of negotiations. Are you able to talk a little bit to that before we finish up today? Yeah, and it can be done pretty. You know, you can write a book on it, which I, which I have. <laughs> which you have. <laughs> well, I can answer it really simply is we are either dividing things up and that is I've got a microphone here 
you want to buy it, I want to sell it to you for $100 and you want it for 50 And we're going to go backward and forward, backward and forward, backward and forward. We're going to end up somewhere in the middle. And that's called compromise. And it's the best you'll get out of division. And if we don't compromise quickly, one of us will lose power. Mm -hmm. And if one uses power too often, the other one will spit and flick. And you go, well, I'm not, I'm not even going to play. You go and find it yourself. And I'll have a little hissy fit and flick you and walk out. And the fourth thing that will happen if we do divide is I'll go, I'm going to report you this is bullying harassment, and I'm going to escalate it to an authority. So it's compromise, power, spit and flick, or escalate, see you in court. The second way is where we integrate. Now, integrate is where you and I have the argument, we end up at 75, and I say now we've got that, what can we do with and for each other that would enhance it? And I actually had, I had a previous mic and it had this wonderful padded case and it just sits in the cupboard somewhere. I'd be happy to throw that in. Now, that thing that didn't cost me anything that's been sitting in the cupboard has value to you. And that's just created amnesia to the tug of war that we played and we finish with a good feeling and you walk away with your reward system going, hey, that was good, dopamine transmits and you walk out going elevated. And they're the two most common. And we do the first one, divide, tug of war, much, much more than we do the, the integrate and cooperate. And then the third way that very few people ever do, and it's the, it's the model I use when I do something like the United Nations meeting, I speak to everybody beforehand and hear what they've been negotiating, realising it doesn't work, hasn't worked and isn't going to. So I've got to redesign the scope, the scale, the structure, the systems, the strategy, the shared vision, the shared purpose, the shared needs and the shared options. And then I create a completely new negotiation where we talk about what we'd all like to see and have and get more for all than the other two will provide. So... They're the three. And I think less than 1% of all negotiations are maximise, maximisation, and maximisation is available most of the time if we stop being busy and rushing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And I was thinking that just that last little bit that you've given us, I was like, wouldn't it be fabulous to have that little video of what you just said and have it out there because so much of what you've been saying is valuable, but I think that also kind of cements it all together. Yeah. You know, it kind of picks up everything we've been talking yeah. about and brings it yeah. into the room to be like, which way do you want it to be and what are you prepared to invest in that to get that outcome? Yeah. Yeah. A little more time, a little more thought, a little more breathing. Yeah. It's there, yeah. And a little more awareness around what we're saying and the lens that we're looking at things through, yeah. you know, Absolutely. the language we're using and, Yeah. yeah. And Alan, I love to finish the podcast with a question and that is what or who in your world truly makes you belly laugh? Like, I mean, you know, that laughing that you get that you, it's almost contagious or someone can hear you from all the way down the hall. Yeah. Because I'm such an outrageous, unpredictable eccentric, <laughs> every now and again, I'll have interviewed 50 people in an organization and I turn up and I've got a CEO who likes to 
to do his spiel and tell me all the glossy rose-coloured glasses about the organisation. And I'll come back and I'll go, so can you just give me your thumbtack on how things are going? And I love it when they go to give me their marketing spiel and I just go, oh, that's so far from what I've just heard. And I'll, I'll just have a little chuckle and they'll go, what's that about? And I, it, it feels like I want a belly laugh, but I don't. I just chuckle. Yeah. And they go, you've heard some differences, haven't you? And they initiate the conversation. Yeah. And they, nine times out of ten, they have a chuckle as well. Mm. Yeah. It, it's the humour that comes out of raw, uncensored honesty. Yeah. I just love it. With no ego. None. Yeah. It's just complete irony between what's being said and what's happening that people just never, never, they notice it but they don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the the magic that happens when we just get real, present and connect. And uncensored. <laughs> uncensored what is. Mm. Yeah. I was just visualising then as you were saying that, that that's my, my experience of you today is that it's like you are just here as you are, who yeah. you are in this world, in this moment, in this point in time. Like that's my experience. Thank you. And we've that's... only just met over the Zoom. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everything yeah. you're speaking to runs through you. I like to be present and think and consider. I like to see if I can have nothing come out of me that's pre-programmed. Yeah. I just want to go, can I honour you to answer your question with the first time I've ever answered it because it is the first time I've answered it, which means I've got to call up what's real for you and me, not what would have I answered based on what I know about your topic in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Alan, thank you. My God. (laughs) I want to ask so much more. There's so, so many things, but I just, I really, truly appreciate the time that you've given up today. I know you've been, okay. you've been busy. And as we had the discussion, when we tried to find another time, we were looking at the diaries going over here, over there. And we're like, Ooh, let's just make it happen. And so thank yeah. you for squeezing us in today and get no. and making this possible for, for all of our listeners to be able to experience that as well. And I really, I know they're going to take things away, but I really hope that they do because I have just listening, you know, and I was I was the interviewer, so I was trying to, you know, think about things, but I was in the moment thinking, wow, that's so true and that's, you know, so valid and that's exactly how it is and <laughs> had to keep coming back into what am I going to ask next? <laughs> so thank you. It's been an absolute treat. Thank you. Loved every moment. What I really enjoyed about this interview was Alan's beautiful, caring nature combined with his incredible knowledge of the brain and human behavior. He has taken complex interactions and broken them down into simple and digestible steps and systems. I'll hold on to his description about an experiment. Imagine if we approach life more like an experiment where there is no pass or fail rather a curious mindset of how we can learn from what we just saw, heard, or experienced. I also really loved his one-liner about why worry about something, why not rehearse instead? 
It would be great to hear what you're taking away from Alan's story. A really good place is either to add it to our Facebook community, Challenges That Change Us, and I invite each and every single one of you to jump on today. You are so welcome to join our community or leave a review on the podcast platform, for example, Spotify or Apple Podcast, wherever you listen to these episodes. We have added all of Alan's details into the show notes and he has some fabulous courses coming up at the end of this year. So jump on and have a look and book in today. If this episode is valuable, please share with your loved ones, friends, and work colleagues. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you all next Monday. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.